Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I handle outreach at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. This podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. But today we're going to talk about a new technology, or a newish technology, and that's robotics. In our view, the use of robotics will increase productivity and has the potential, and has the potential to bring back manufacturing production work to developed countries. There's a lot going on in robotics. In my opinion, probably the most important technology for the next 20 years. And we really have a great guest today to talk about it. Our guest is Ryan Witten. He is a strategic technologies analyst at ABI Research. He provides consulting and analysis of robotics, automation, intelligence systems, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. He has also written extensively on the commercial application of unmanned aerial vehicles. Subjects of, subjects of interest include lethal autonomous weapons, unmanned systems, aerospace innovation, and how it relates to international affairs. Welcome, Ryan. Good to have you. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. It's Rob's favorite topic, so I don't know if we're going to have enough time, but we're going to do our best. It is, good. it is my favorite topic. I love robots. I know a lot of people don't. I love robots. Every time I see a robot, I get happy. Um, I was in sort of a robotic device this morning. It's called an automatic elevator. Uh, the old days, they used to have a person that did it. Now it's robotic, and um, it didn't crash. It, it was amazing. So we hear a lot about robotics these days, even though they've been around, particularly industrial robots, for many decades. Um, Ryan, what's different now? Why why are we hearing so much more about robotics? Uh, what's changed? Uh, why are we seeing both broader and deeper adoption across sectors? Yeah, I I think, as you say, robots have been a feature for our lives for many years. I mean, the, the first industrial robot really goes back to 1961. It's invented by Joseph Engelberger and George DeVolt at Unimation. Uh, the company is set up in Connecticut, and it's first debuted at a trade fair in Chicago, and then it's first deployed in New Jersey. So it's a really a, a story of American innovation alongside the you know, innovations at Bell Labs or in aerospace and so forth. Uh, and then it's very heavily located in the automotive industry and then to some extent in the electronics industry. And for a variety of reasons, which perhaps we'll get on to, uh, the uh, robotics industry shifts drastically to Japan, East Asia and Germany and away from the United States uh, because these countries invest a lot more uh, in uh, optimizing the technology. They focus a lot more on automating their production lines. And for that reason, uh, although industrial robots was really uh, invented in the United States, uh, it's really an international technology with lots of clusters spread all over the world. I think what we're seeing uh, today has been uh, kind of innovations in two major groupings. Uh, when we're talking about modern robots, uh, they're either centered around mobility. So they're either talking about wheeled systems, maybe track systems or quadrupeds or bipeds, uh, or we're talking about manipulation robots that are, you know, uh, palletizing or picking something or, or doing some dispensation of some kind or doing some material removal. When it comes to mobility, uh, 
the robots that we've seen since the 60s have really been uh, automated guided vehicles that have generally run on external infrastructure, magnetic tape, uh, traditional markers, QR codes and the like. These, you know, pertain to like the Amazon Kiva systems, of which there are about 350,000 deployed now. But over the last uh, 20 years or so, we've really seen the maturation of technologies that are centered around localization and mapping which have made it much easier for robots to be deployed with sensors on the systems themselves so that they can navigate without the need for uh, really rigid uh, physical external infrastructure. Uh, and this creates a, a, a real opportunity as it pertains to deployment because you don't have to uh, build all this external infrastructure alongside the robot. And we're seeing this with Amazon, their new uh, subset of mobile robots that they're going to be deploying over the next 10 years uh, will uh, be this new category of mobile robot or, or what we're calling AMR. Uh, when it comes to manipulation, uh, the innovations have um, been similarly quite impressive. Uh, you have uh, most industrial robotic arms run on six degrees of freedom. We've started seeing systems being uh, built that have seven degrees of freedom, so extra levels of flexibility. It means that the motion planning software can catch up to the tasks that are required of this robot so that they can do more uh, specialized tasks like bin picking um, with highly randomized objects and SKUs. Uh, we're also seeing cobots coming to the market. These are industrial robotic arms that generally have significant force limitations or force torque sensors applied to them so that they can work in and around people. And actually, the development of these cobots was really pushed forward by uh, US health regulators and by American universities who kind of saw the uh, the backbreaking work that was happening on American production lines in the 90s and actually uh, sort of pushed uh, automation vendors and automotive players to say, right, you need to develop some new automation systems that are going to be able to collaborate and work alongside humans rather than uh, simply replacing them. Uh, so those are the two uh, categories in which I would say there's been uh, really significant uh, innovation, and that's how I'd probably define uh, the current uh, industrial and commercial robotics industry. So we could go in a lot of different directions, but but one that I think is interesting, you mentioned that there's really sort of two main types. There's the mobile type, and then there's the fixed type that are pick and place or cut something. Whatever. Increasingly, we're seeing robots in agriculture, uh, picking apples, for example. Those would be kind of a combination of, of those because they have to be able to move, but then they're also doing routinized tax. And in fact, I was on a panel with somebody from the California Department of Agriculture uh, talking about AI, and they're actually using AI to train so they know when which apple is the right the ripe apple and which apple's not, that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about that, if you're familiar with that? Yeah, absolutely. So really, uh, this category is what you know is, is generally termed mobile manipulation. So um, applying a manipulation device onto a mobile robotics platform. Now, uh, the economics of this are very challenging at the present time, uh, insofar as that uh, you've got a very expensive arm on a very expensive platform uh, that at the moment, at least in industrial environments, hasn't been seen to justify the cost that it takes to replace a, a human worker or picker. Uh, but as you see, you know, and people have talked a lot recently about labor shortages, particularly in agriculture, um, both in the US and in the UK uh, post-Brexit, um, you might start seeing uh, a lot more investment going into these technologies. Uh, I think that when it comes to the mobile manipulation opportunity, it's currently very nascent. 
it requires lots of advances in uh, motion planning software and the algorithms that uh, are able to match different items or uh, essentially help the robot or end effect to manipulate the object um, still need to be optimized. I think that uh, when it comes to agriculture, though, the, the opportunity goes beyond um, picking fruit or, or, or things like that. Uh, there's already uh, uh, lots of opportunities when it comes to uh, doing analyses on on fields or arable land, chlorophyll content, uh, counting the number of livestock. Um, just doing basic analyses on that with tractors or drones is, is already a very big opportunity. Uh, but absolutely, I, I think that at the moment, the vast majority of, of activity that we see um, when it comes to deployments is in what you call structured environments, indoors, um, some open to the public, the vast majority warehouses, fulfillment centers, manufacturing centers that are not. But I think as the efficacy of the technology improves, you're going to see robots being deployed in two new environments, namely the smart city, where they're operating uh, within streets and around the public and in the field, uh, particularly around agricultural spaces and uh, in uh, uh, places of external industrial infrastructure like chemical plants and so forth. Uh, mines are another real uh, opportunity zone for. As we see with really any other technology, as they improve, there's always room for robotics to get better too. Um, what are some of the most important areas of technical improvements that you think are needed? Sure. I, I think uh, I, there's many, but I, I'll focus on three. So one would be perception. Uh, the modern mobile robots that we see are increasingly pretty adept at localizing themselves while mapping out the uh, terrain that they're in. But when it becomes to perceiving the environment, actually getting a semantic understanding of the environment, uh, there's still a lot to be desired. Uh, it, when we refer to semantics, we're referring to the robot actually understanding not merely whether there is an obstacle in their way and whether they need to reroute, but is that obstacle a person? Is it a manned a truck is it another robot is it a robot from a different supplier is it a robot doing the same task or a different task uh, can it expect to move uh, within a certain time so that traffic doesn't need to be delayed or does the robot need to come to a hard stop uh, i think that as you see uh, much more advances in uh, computer vision uh, and in the combination of uh, 3d cameras and 2d and 3d lidar the ability for the robot to actually get a really detailed semantic understanding of their environment uh, will get much better. That, in turn, will greatly improve the ability of the robot to act uh, autonomously on its own and will drastically reduce the number of uh, edge cases, autonomy exceptions, they're generally called, where a person has to either remotely or manually come in and set the robot straight because it's made an error. Uh, I think that another big challenge is interoperability. Uh, everyone. Uh, is you know talking about you know expanding their robot fleet, getting it up to the thousands. But if we're talking about a big uh, company like FedEx, take their, uh, uh, their 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 airport, their like main like uh, uh, logistics hub. That's going to involve hundreds of robots doing you know dozens of different use cases, and it's going to come from lots of different suppliers. You know they'll have very different form factors, and there needs to be some common protocols in place so that these systems can actually uh, share information, have a common shared semantic understanding of the environment, and uh, actually do task interoperability. 
Uh, where we're actually seeing some of these standards be formed is by um, regional uh, robotics organizations like Mass Robotics um, up in Massachusetts. Uh, now, that uh, is obviously highly localized with the companies that are involved there. I think that, uh, you, know, uh, you know, some companies based in Pittsburgh or Silicon Valley would like a bigger role within that space and in that uh, consortium. Um, but it's not just uh, American actors that are trying to affect that. Uh, you have uh, the German car industry trying to put out their own standard on interoperability for AGVs. That's uh, VDA 5050. So uh, I think that uh, industry standards need to improve so that uh, the robots can uh, can share information more easily and so that you can get these diverse fleets actually running effectively. I think Perhaps a third area where there might be uh, room for innovation is uh, gradual supervised autonomy. While in structured environments like the warehouse, we expect these robots to run almost like clockwork. When it comes to you know many uh, cases like ports or mines or in civil cases or in robots involving uh, remote manipulation in industrial inspection and so forth, uh, teleoperation is still going to be a very big uh, part of the robotics market. I mean, we think about the bomb disposal robots, but there's loads of other use cases where the robot being fully autonomous is not going to be possible. But I think that we are going to move away from remote teleoperation, where it's just one person controlling uh, a robot to supervised autonomy, where a robot might uh, complete a certain set of tasks after which the operator kind of supervises them and makes sure that the task has been completed and then okays it to go ahead with the next task. Uh, as well as that, they'll be operating and working with lots of different robots and kind of taking a more supervisory role um, as opposed to a, a remote uh, operation role. Uh, this will um, have to be uh, enabled by improvements in connectivity. Um, at the moment, the latency demands of that kind of operation are quite strenuous on 4G LTE. I think that's where something like 5G, as it uh, slowly rolls out, um, will become a very big enabler. Yeah, Doug Brake at ITIF has done lots of work on 5G. And uh, everybody thinks about 5G as faster throughput. I can download my movie. or, or But it, really, the, the, the much lower latency, which is essentially between the time you send a signal and the time it it, it gets received is, is really, really important, particularly in, in these areas you're, you're talking about there, Ryan. So I wanted to um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about how robots are being adopted. One of the things that you, you see this constantly, and I know you've you've tweeted about this, Ryan, on 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 on, on, on your Twitter um, account. There's lots and lots of studies that show that countries that adopt robots actually don't lose manufacturing jobs because they become more competitive. But when you look at around the world um, and at who's adopting the most robots, the International Robot Association comes out with a report every year or two or so. And we did an analysis. They were kind enough to share their data with us. We did an analysis of that study where we controlled for the income of a country. As you noted earlier, if, you, if you're paying workers a dollar an hour or 25 cents an hour in, in Bangladesh or something, you're not going to want to be able to adopt. You're not going to be able to adopt robots because you just don't save enough money. But if you're in Germany where you're paying 40 or $50 dollars an hour, the case for adopting robots is a lot higher. So what we did is we controlled for all of that and said, okay, now that you control for manufacturing wage levels, Who's really leading? And it turns out it's um, 
It's not the U.S. The U.S. is way, way behind, um, as is the U.K. Uh, it's countries like Korea, Japan, and Singapore. Uh, and even China is, 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 is hitting, uh, batting above its weight here, punching above its weight. It, it's adopting a lot more robots than you would expect, given its income level. Any thoughts on sort of why we see big differences like that? Yeah, no, it's it's a very good point, and uh, yeah, I, I think the what the IFR do in terms of that data is, is incredibly valuable. Uh, it's not surprising that the you know two most financialized economies and those most casual in regard to uh, industrial strategy and planning and protecting their own manufacturing base, the US and the UK, really through the noughties, hemorrhage manufacturing employment, while countries like Japan, Korea, and Germany you know, protected their industries, invested in automation. And really uh, uh, came out much better, uh, relatively. Uh, the situation in the U.S. is is certainly subpar, or has been for, for the last decade or so. In the U.K., the uh, problem is particularly egregious. Uh, it's not merely that the U.K. has far fewer robots than its competitors. It even has a, a lower robot density than than China. In fact, it's it's almost uh, half of it. So I think uh, the U.K. has 91 robots per 10,000 industrial workers. China has about uh, uh, 187. Um, the U.S. is at 228. Uh, the most uh, uh, advanced adopters like Singapore are well into the, the 800s or 900s. Um, but, I mean, the U.K., it, it, it's interesting you say that the, uh, the adoption of robots is supposed to be correlated with job losses. That's what the, the conventional wisdom would say. But... I, I mean, I think from Brookings, this came from between 1993 and 2007, the UK, which adopted far fewer robots, lost about 50% of its manufacturing um, employment, or it decreased by over 50%, whereas Germany's decreased by less than 20%. Uh, it was a very difficult time for um, manufacturing in high-wage countries because of China's uh, introduction to the WTO, but it was clear that the UK uh, suffered disproportionately. And yeah, I think, it, as you say, uh, the, the the countries that have a strategy and, and deploy it and uh, 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 essentially want to protect their industries uh, when it relates to automotive and electronics uh, have a much higher density rate of robots and thus uh, suffered much less badly uh, in that period. Um, where I would perhaps uh, say is that when it comes to the robot density rate, it doesn't tell the whole story about uh, innovation and uh, relative adoption in automation. The US uh, certainly lags in industrial robot adoption, partly because its electronics and automotive sectors are comparatively or have been comparatively unproductive versus German or Japanese competitors. But if you look at where the innovation is in mobile robots or in uh, the cutting edge, it, it, the United States uh, remains and perhaps has even extended its lead. Uh, if you look at the uh, open source robotics community, Ross, I mean, that's centered in the United States. That's spun out of Willow Garage, which you know went to the, uh, obviously comes from Silicon Valley. Well, I think Willow was actually a Google initiative, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, and and Google's um, bringing out another platform related to robots in a, in intrinsic. So. I think, and then you have a company like Amazon, which uh, has deployed, you know, more mobile robots, more AGVs than uh, than any company today. It, it, in fact, in terms of install base, it might have as much as half of the total mobile robot market. So uh, the U.S. has been uh, astonishingly successful uh, at deploying automation. It's just only been in the industries where the wind has been in its sails, uh, in its sort of legacy manufacturing base. 
um, it's really lagged. Uh, but I, I think the UK is a much more worrying case of, of what happens when you uh, ignore or uh, pay insufficient attention to automation. So we've got time maybe just for a few more minutes, but I just wanted to touch base on our touch in on this issue of uh, these what I think are very, very kind of Luddite-like proposals around robots and tax and robots and banning them. Uh, Darren Asagamblu at MIT, he, he he and I debated. He He's proposing that the government tax only robots that displace workers, but not cobots, um, and, and only only automation robots as opposed to other kinds. Uh, Bill Gates has proposed a robot tax, and these are responding to you know, fears about workers losing their job, but they ignore the fact of how important it's going to be for robots to raise productivity, particularly as we all get older and the baby boomers retire and the governments are running out of money. We've got to figure out a way to raise productivity. Um, what are your thoughts on some of those proposals? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. Um, I mean, uh, Asimoglu has has written some uh, papers which would indicate um, that automation is actually a great way to mitigate the problems that come with uh, an aging population. Um, so the fact that he's uh, 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 focusing so much on taxing what he considers bad automation is is perplexing. What's more is it's presumably the purpose of this tax is to uh, funnel money that will retrain uh, uh, people into new jobs. Uh, you're just not going to get that much money um, from taxing what is still quite a nascent industry. We're, we're talking about at most uh, in the U.S. Uh, slightly over 10 billion in terms of sales, and globally it's still under 100 billion. Um, by comparison, if you look at the value of uh, share buybacks, uh, you know, for one quarter, it's you know exceeding hundreds of billions, and it's you know trillions uh, every year. Uh, if you want to uh, fund retraining programs, that's fine. Uh, but the areas where you're going to get the sufficient money to fund that will be in uh, taxing individuals to a higher rate or cracking down on tax havens. The the idea that automation um, can uh, can uh, solve uh, retraining problems through taxation, I, I think, is um, is very bizarre. Well, we'll just make the tax super big, like three or four hundred percent. That should solve the problem. Exactly. 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 Uh, yeah, I mean that's the 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 jogpocalypse. Uh, uh, I guess is the meme here, right? Um, what should governments do to maximize the installation of robotics? Yeah, no, uh, good question. I, I I think that obviously maximizing uh, adoption is isn't in itself the aim. The aim is to is to increase productivity. But definitely, you know, ways you could do it is you could actually um, uh, create tax credits for CapEx. You could make uh, robotics and automation a separate category for that. Uh, you could uh, look at maybe a national investment fund for industrial applications. You could maybe look at what uh, consortiums like Mass Robotics are doing at the regional level and try to scale it, this up to the national level. Uh, generally, government uh, in the U.S. is, is very kind of uh, light touch when it comes to setting standards on robotics. Uh, I think that you may want to get a bit bolder on that. Um, I think that, you know, you can... Uh, look at successful countries like Japan, who have uh, their own uh, national robot strategy that started in 2015. Uh, in You look through uh, what uh, Japan lays out there, it's a clear set of regulatory uh, uh, reforms and some clear targets about how many robot pilot projects they want, how many robots they want deployed in what location. Whereas I think if you look at the UK strategies that uh, have been published by um, 
you know our our equivalent of the of the uh, uh, the uh, Department of Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy. Uh, the language is much more airy and much less uh, committal. You know, it would you know perhaps even some very basic targets. You know, the UK has eighty uh, percent of Germany's economy, but only fifty percent of its industrial output. How happy are we with that discrepancy? The, 30% of uh, UK GDP is based on imports. Uh, how happy are we with that? Would we like to get that down to 20%? How might automation solve that? Uh, I think if you look at where uh, policy from and government intervention has been very successful in regards to automation, you can look to a country like Denmark, very small country. Uh, they uh, have this uh, incredible cluster of robotics companies um, in Odens um, in southern Denmark. And that really is the combination of one of their um, major shipping companies, Maersk, planning and uh, to build an advanced shipyard um, about 25 years ago uh, and uh, funding and making sizable donations to the local university. Now, the actual shipyard didn't get built, but a lot of that funding translated into the robotics industry, uh, which has since been uh, favorably funded by the local government and has really been fostered and has been given uh, a lot of uh, a lot of attention. Uh, you know, even like, uh, you know, basic interactions like getting access to the local mayor who can, you know, uh, extend a lease or things like that. Um, and making it a really business friendly environment has really helped this this very you know small cluster. Um, and make a very big impact on the on the general industry. Um, you see that in a lot of these uh, Odens companies, or two of them specifically, uh, mobile industrial robots and universal robots, are leaders in their respective fields uh, and have been bought by a, an American uh, manufacturer called Teradyne. No, that's great. We are we did an event, uh, I don't know, maybe two years ago up in the Senate, uh, U.S. Senate, where we uh, had a panel on robots. We actually had a couple of pa- a couple of robots uh, actually there. And I think one was universal, as I recall. Um, Ryan, this is really fantastic. We could keep going, uh, but unfortunately, we are out of time. So I want to thank you uh, so much for being with us. Really, really interesting. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. We have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes will drop every other Monday, so we hope you'll continue to tune in. Talk to you soon.